like to invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Daniel, chapter 11, for the momentary reading of God's Word. Things happen according to plan. Today is the Christian holiday of Pentecost, where we're naturally drawn to think of Pentecost, the early church, the apostles' work. Church history. Tomorrow is D-Day. We think a lot of national history during June, a lot of holidays that we remember. 1944, founding of the country, 1776. If you were to take, in terms of numbers, the history of America's founding from 1776 to today, you would have four years shy of 250, 246, I think, not great at math, but did quick math on the way up, because it relates, in terms of correlating numbers and thinking about time frames with our text today, which really seeks to zero in on about twice that many years. Daniel 11 is, is really talking about a time frame twice as old as this country. You need to travel back in your mind to 2,500 years ago to get a sense of the predictive prophecy of Daniel chapter 11. It's long for a reason, 45 verses, because it is the substance of the fourth and final vision given to Daniel as recorded in the prophetic book of Daniel. You may remember that Daniel's split in half. First six chapters are narrative stories of Daniel and his companions' exile and their experience as persecuted believers in the Babylonian Empire. You may also remember that near the end of that narrative, a new empire ascended to be the most powerful ruling country in the world, and it moved from Babylon to Persia in terms of the centralization of power. And you may remember that in the narrative that when Cyrus or Darius defeated King Belshazzar, the Persians had a different policy toward God's people than did the Babylonians. And that different policy may be simply summarized as, instead of exiling them, they allowed them to return to their land in Jerusalem. And so when we pick up in Daniel chapter 11 today, we pick up with the exiled people returning or post-exile. And one man having a vision, the fourth of four visions, which encompasses chapters 10, 11, and 12 of Daniel. One man having a vision that would communicate to all of the people, including us, something of God's plans and something of God's getting His way throughout history that should encourage us to stand. And so, today's sermon title is Standing with Christ in a Fallen World, or shorter still, Standing Through Struggles. We've been talking about this sort of a theme for a few weeks. I said previously, the last time that I preached, that people are generally either going into, coming out of, or in the middle of some kind of a struggle, some kind of a problem in life. That seems to be a pretty good description, not necessarily of how we handle it and what our attitude is, but it seems to be a pretty good description of our lives in a fallen world. And that is no less true than of the time in which we're talking that the Bible is referring to today. Now, we plan to finish Daniel next Sunday, so we'll finish the footer of this, the sermons from this fourth vision in Daniel, Daniel 10, 11, and 12. But today we're in the, the, the meat of the apocalyptic vision that Daniel received, the meat of predictive prophecy that Daniel received. And he received this in 536 B.C. We can track it almost to the year based on the information that we have in this part of Daniel. And so if you're a note taker, you may really want to highlight 536 or even just 530 BC by, by way of estimation and then put a dash beside it and go 30 BC. Now, this won't take us directly to 30, but it does indicate the fall of the power of the Greeks and the rise of the Roman Empire, which was thoroughly consolidated and conferred in 30 BC. Just just a few generations before Christ. So in this time frame that we have, 
we have a lot of predictive prophecy that Daniel gives about it that then comes true. And I do believe that Daniel received this prophecy in 530 B.C. and wrote it down to encourage God's people that God knows what's going to happen before it happens and is very much capable of getting all of his people to where they need to be. That's different than saying somebody went back and filled this in later. I believe that the Old Testament canon of Scripture was completely written down and there was a 400-year gap between the prophets and the apostles and that there was no writing of Scripture. It was what we sometimes refer to as the silent period. Not that God was silent with his people, but that there was no new revelation of Scripture given. And I believe that after those years that God again gave written word through the apostles, and that's what's called our New Testament, and I believe that there will be no new Scripture given between the end of the death of the last apostle, which was the apostle John at the end of the first century, and the return of Christ. I believe what you have is a secured canon of Scripture or rule of Scripture Genesis to Revelation, and without offering a full and complete class on the doctrine of Scripture, I simply need to say that we affirm as a church that this is the book, the only book, and there won't be anything added to it. Now, Daniel really helps us narrow into that discussion because of the amount of predictive prophecy that he offers before the fact about that time of relative silence in terms of the giving of Scripture. Now, it does not mean that there was not history being made and written in that time. There certainly was. Some of the books that you think of today and refer to as apocryphal books, like the books of Maccabees, are books that fit firmly in this time frame. And they do provide some historical detail, no doubt, for the events that are being described in Daniel 11. But you ought never take Maccabees and put it on par with Daniel. Daniel is God's word for us, inspired, infallible, and inerrant, and Maccabees is not. I feel as if I've also almost exhausted introductory comments, but I want to say a few things about the framing of the sermon, because once we begin with the three points, there won't be time to stop. There's too many details in 45 verses and too little time. But just simply to say that I think this concept of standing rings through in this chapter, and that we can be helped to stand with Christ in this fallen world by studying Daniel 11, and particularly to stand with Christ with the help of the Lord through life's painful disagreements, through downright oppression, and through worries about the future. So if you were to break them into three parts, and probably would help because of the length of the text for you to really write that down or seal it in your brain, we have our very first point, which is verses 1 to 20, which is how we are helped through disagreements, painful disagreements. The second point will be verses 21 to 35, the oppression of life, and thirdly and finally, Verses 36 to 45, worries out into the future. Worries out into the future. So, without further ado, let's get into the text. Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 to 20. Our first point, and because of the length of verses, I won't read it all at first and then go back to it. I will read them as we go, sort of midrash style at a time so that we can make better time today. So, Daniel 11, 1 to 20, our very first point, God is with us through struggles, painful disagreements. Struggles of painful disagreements. And so here we are, Daniel 11, 1 to 20. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them, and which he became, and when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, the kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. And his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, and from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods, with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. 
Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Verse 10. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall, arise, shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies." In those times he shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come and the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. He shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. And this is verses 1 to 20 of God's word recorded in Daniel chapter 11 in this vision. Daniel 11 is the substance of the vision introduced and completed, as I've said, in Daniel 10 to 12. And Daniel receives this vision in the third year of King Darius or Cyrus of Persia. However, this heavenly messenger wants Daniel to know that God is the God of three years ago too. That God stood up to confirm and strengthen the Persian ruler to change that Babylonian policy and allow God's people to return and to rebuild Temple Mount in Jerusalem. God was preserving truth there and is now. He is preserving truth in this apocalyptic vision and the heavenly messenger in this time was about to allow Daniel to peer into the future. Now, you may recall in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel's receiving of this vision is strictly for him. Everybody else that was with him went away. And he, his receiving of this vision by the river Tigris was a traumatic event for him. Sometimes we become flippant in our day about hearing from God. We certainly hear from God by his word. And we certainly know that God loves us and wants to communicate to us by his word. At the very same time, when we talk about drawing close to God, we need to understand that when prophetic visions were given of old, there was no flippancy. They didn't just keep on doing whatever they were doing. They were struck by the presence of God. And in this case, Daniel couldn't stand or speak. Without God's strengthening, there was nothing that Daniel could do besides go into a, a position of weakness and wait for God to touch him and to empower him. Now, in terms of the history of epics within salvation history, I don't understand us to be living in the time of the prophets that have their writings recorded in the Old Testament, so I'm strictly speaking principally to say it like this. Before we go about our business of saying, God showed me this, and God showed me that, and God showed me this, and God showed me that, let's make sure there is a reverential fear, a holy fear, a holy, based on the holy love of God toward us. Daniel understood that very well. Daniel 10 tells it, and we ought to understand it today. Life is filled with disagreements. Life is filled with pain. And Daniel understood that the way through life was not to become flippant with God, but to pray to God, and when God made himself known to him, to show proper respect. God stood up, or he sent a heavenly messenger to stand up and to confirm and strengthen the Persian ruler to change the Babylonian policy, as we've said before. And with this vision that he gives to Daniel, he wants to confirm him within him that he will strengthen his people just the same in the future as he has in the past. When everything seems to be lost, you can count on God to be there with his people. 
helping them when it seems as if the struggles and the disagreements coming from within and from without will surely cripple and end God's work. How much do we need this, church? How often do we seem small and insignificant compared to the rulers of the world around us? How often does it seem as if we are being kicked around, that is, true believers and sincere followers of Christ, as some kind of a political football within someone else's grander scheme? Let today hearten you. The grander scheme is not the ruling class of this world. The grander scheme is God on His throne in heaven who will have His way on earth. We follow Him, and all of history is our history because it's His history. Things are happening according to plan, and He always gets His man, and He's going to get you all the way home. And the rulers of this world, as frustrating as they may make you, should not eternally take your eyes off of the Christ who is risen and will raise you too. That's good news, isn't it? Now to the text here in Daniel 11, they needed the message that God is on His throne because it appeared as if thrones were being passed around like hot potatoes. If you're to glance at verse 2, we have this sort of Proverbs type 3, then one more fourth to describe and whisk away a selective history of Persian kings. They certainly had more than four, but probably referencing not only Darius, but also Xerxes, who picked a fight with the Greeks in 480 B.C. and got throttled, and it began the slow and painful downfall of the Persian Empire giving way to the Greeks, which is verbatim recorded in verse 2. So stir up against the kingdom of Greece. He should have been careful who he picked a fight with. Then in verse 3, a mighty king arose who shall, do, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. This is almost certainly Alexander the Great who conquered a massive empire, but then died very young. In fact, he only had about a 10-year run, and he went from ending the Persian dominance to establishing Greek dominance in that 10-year run. But this predictive prophecy is fairly straightforward, that his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. If you look at the end of verse 4, and I do hope that you have your Bibles out and you're kind of listening and reading at the same time, because again kind of an interpretive style. We're just going verse by verse. And so the kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside them. And that's a big pause within this first point because after verse 4, what it is that you find is, is that Alexander the Great died 323 B.C. and four of his generals carved up the empire and neither of his sons got the land. And so it's God's point is to, is to take us through 200 years of Persian history just like that, just the same way that in many ways we talk a lot about Babylonian history and how God used him to punish his people for their rebellion, but then ended them. God is completely in control of the rise and fall of nations, and we shouldn't be caught off guard when things seem not to go our way, even for a bit of a long time. When it comes to 323 B.C., what we have is the beginning of 300 years of relevance on the global scene for Greece. And really, the Bible is only concerned with two of the four generals because those are the ones that directly sandwiched Jerusalem between them. And they passed Jerusalem back and forth. First with the Ptolemy kingdom ruling from the south, and then later with the Seleucid kingdom ruling from the north. And so that's why some of your Bibles will say the kings of the south and the north to describe this section as a header. It's why you may have heard south and north and north and south and south and north. This is not American history beginning in 1776. This is Greek history beginning in 323 B.C. I think it's important to pause here and say something about history. I'm going to rattle through a little bit, well, a lot of bit more of it in the balance of the sermon because that's what the text does. But I've thought quite a bit in the last two weeks and studied quite a bit. I felt like I took a history course the last two weeks. I'm just going to say I'm... Some of these things have woven their way into my membrane from Sinclair Ferguson and the NIV and the ESV study Bibles and from Ralph Dale Davis. And I'm not, I don't want to not give credit where credit's due, but this is a mishmash of stuff as I'm talking to you. So just know that up front that I didn't write a history book in the last two weeks. But I want you to know that I have thought quite a lot about why God would want us to learn history, this history. I mean, he spans almost 500 years. Why, why, why? 
And I think I've already tipped my hand quite a bit to why it is that I think that. But I just want to kind of be very clear. We study history because God has always been active in history. Stephen Nichols has a, um, a podcast that's titled Five Minutes in Church History, and he starts each or ends each podcast with, or I'm sorry, starts each podcast with uh, church history is our family history. Welcome to our family history. If you come to Sunday school during this summer, you're going to get a series of one-off teachings from here by men in the church on some historical figure in church history over the last 2,000 years, and it's going to be a teaching on their life and testimony and how it relates to God's unfolding plan. Now, church history and the history of God's people throughout time is important, and Daniel 11, I think, is a wonderful statement about that. It's a wonderful statement that God not only offers predictive prophecy to the first hearers of this, but now he offers us history confirmed as we look back. So just, just uh, Kids, let me talk to you for a moment here. Instead of waiting to the end, I was going to do this at the end, I'll just do this now. Uh, kids, don't look at history as a subject that's unimportant to you. I think it's one of the harder subjects when you're looking at, at material that you're learning as you're going through your education. It's one of the harder subjects to really appreciate unless you just have a love for history because you think, oh, that's a bunch of stuff in the past. God is really concerned with stuff that's happened in the past. He's really concerned about it. And it doesn't have to be your favorite subject. He's also concerned with math and science and everything else too, but I'm talking about history today. And I think one of the reasons that God is so concerned that we have a grasp on history is so that we're not fooled by, by deceitful arguments and retellings of history today. I think it's also very important that kids and adults that we become students of history because the Bible has so much history. And I also think it's very important that we care about history because as we see God working in the past, we have more sure and certain confidence that He is at work in the present into the future, right? And we need to know that because we tend to begin to live as if we're the only people that have ever lived on planet Earth, and we're the only people, only people that have ever followed God, and that's not the case at all. We have a rich family history, so we want to know as much about it as we can. These people felt, by 323 B.C., surely they felt as if they were being passed around, like, you know, hit around like a ping-pong ball. It was awful. If you look down at verse 5, I told you that the Ptolemies, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, out of Alexandria, Egypt, that's where they were centered, were the most powerful for a while. And then later, the northern Seleucids were more powerful, and they were stationed out of Antioch, Syria, and they literally fought over territory between them for several hundred years. So two of Alexander's four generals had offspring and heirs to the throne that fought over territory that just put the post-exiled people of God in Jerusalem in a vice, vice script. It was awful. And... When we hit verse 5 here, one of the things that you see in verse 5 is the strength of the first. Ptolemy II sent his daughter Bernice to the northern king Antiochus II to try to get peace and control. But Antiochus II's first wife, Laodice, poisoned Bernice and her son and her husband, and the alliance failed, verse 6. Then in verse 7, Ptolemy III, Bernice's brother, sought revenge by attacking the north. And he carried off valuables to the south, that is, to Egypt. And you see that in verse 8. And then in verse 9, describes that after a very short time of peace, the northern king, Seleucus II, invaded the south hastily and had to retreat, 226 B.C. And then verse 10 talks about his sons that wage war or stir up strife, some of your translations will say. This is Seleucus III, the northern king, and... He was murdered so that Antiochus III, the northern king, the great, could then be described as invading the south again. Verse 12, Antiochus III did not prevail against Ptolemy IV. Ptolemy IV was a philanderer given to dissipation. He was not a good ruler, but he had good generals. So Ptolemy IV, did, he actually defeated Antiochus III in the region southwest of what we know as Gaza today. So the Gaza has been a thing for a long time. But Ptolemy IV later died, and then in 203 B.C., which is verse 12, Antiochus III the Great came again, and in verse 13, this time he successfully invaded the south. And then we talk about Jerusalem in verse 14. You have a quote there in verse 14, "...violent men of your people shall exalt themselves, but shall fall." So they are part of this as well. In fact, I think it's all told 
to encourage and to inform God's people throughout time. So they're part of this too. What had happened is they started to think that they, they should favor either the north or the south, depending on the way the wind was blowing, that one of them would treat them better than the other, and they were generally wrong. They both treated them badly, and we're going to see that their, their desire uh, split right down to the priesthood, and the northerns, or we, I can say that, and we're going to see that the northerns wind up having control over them, but that they're not very good to them at all whatsoever, and that's how this text actually ends today, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So the violent men of Israel rebelled because they thought at this point northern rule would be better. That proved to be a grave mistake. And then in verse 15, the northern king Antiochus III conquered Ptolemy V, and his general, Ptolemy V's general, surrendered at Sidon in 198 B.C. That's verse 15. And then there's all this language according to the theme about standing and standing and standing. Look at verse 16 once more, just kind of glance down at it. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills. None shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. If you let your eyes glance back at chapter 11, verse 1, the heavenly messenger says, I stood, I stand, to confirm and strengthen King Darius I. So there is a, an interplay with this word stand in this text. We know who ultimately stands, and I, I exhorted upon that just a few minutes ago about our heavenly, our Lord and the heavenly throne. Now in verse 16, when it says, stand, we find that we depend on God's help to help us through struggles of disagreement. We don't even know who it is that we should trust, follow, the political winds can be so confusing from time to time. And as if God sort of lifts our eyes above that by looking at this and saying, trust me, stand for fidelity to your worship and live out your faith and know that I am with you even when times are disagreeable and painful. Antiochus III thought that he would cinch this thing up for the north. He gave his daughter Cleopatra, and that's not the queen of denial. It's not that Cleopatra. It was earlier. Cleopatra, not Caesar and Mark Antony, but earlier, 150 years earlier. So Antiochus III gave his daughter to Ptolemy V and tried to control the south, and again it failed. They didn't learn the lessons from history. So Cleopatra falls in love with the Egyptian ruler, Ptolemy V, and became Egyptian. So that totally backfired. And then in verse 18, we have Rome entering the fray. And that's, that's what this verse is really about, is Rome comes onto the scene says in verse 18, Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land. So this idea of a fortress and war and trusting in chariots and horses and a military might and not in the Lord. It says at the end of verse 19, But he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So Rome enters the fray of verse 18 with the Battle of Magnesia and the Roman commander Scipio partnered with the south to turn back Antiochus III and turning his insolence back on him. So the northern ruler Antiochus III turns back toward Antioch, Syria, the fortress of his own land. But he stumbled himself and was killed because he was robbing pagan temples to Zeus to try to pay off the Roman money. So it did not end well for him. It says that Antiochus III was killed at the temple and shall not be found. And a Seleucid ruler replaced Antiochus III that tried to heavily tax God's people in Jerusalem, tried to really punish them. Verse 20 talks about Jerusalem and refers to it as his glorious kingdom. If I've got the right verse, the glory of the kingdom, a tribute for the glory of the kingdom or the glorious kingdom, how it's referred to in other translations and throughout Daniel. In verse 20, it says, But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So what history tells us there is that the tax collector actually turned against the ruler and poisoned him because he had some, some kind of a vision that he shouldn't be doing this to God's people in Jerusalem. So that tax collector was responsible for ending Antiochus III and through poison. And then we get to the real subject of Daniel 11 anyway. It seems as if there's all these lessons being taught to us and his history being given predictively for us now to see his history getting us all the way to 175 B.C., and a ruler named Antiochus IV Epiphanes who ruled from 175 to 164 B.C., and he mega-majorly oppressed God's people. Antiochus IV Epiphanes is a name you would want to write down if you're really trying to remember the marrow of meaning in Daniel 11 because he becomes a type as well as a figure for the enemies of God. 
he sort of ends the chronologically precise history of the North and the South to talk about wickedness more generally. So let's take pause and, and, and take inventory. If you were to read this text through, you would hear echoes from other prophetic books in the Old Testament contemporaries, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, to name a few. You'd also hear how there's interaction with Isaiah earlier and certainly later Revelation. As we think about this text, let's drill into now not just painful disagreements, but actual religious oppression that comes from time to time in the life of the church. So our second point begins in Daniel chapter 11, verse 21, and runs through verse 35, how God is with His people through struggles of oppression. And Antiochus Epiphanes is the theme here as the chief persecutor of the people, and you're going to hear why. Listen to Daniel eleven twenty-one. The text says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person, that's Antiochus Epiphanes IV, to whom is a northern ruler, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time, that time, that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall divide plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. For a plot shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim, that is Cyprus, Roman ships, shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm, stand firm, and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. That is Daniel 11, verses 21 to 35. So as I've said, the person that arises in the northern ruler's place is this Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And the ESV study Bible points out something that's kind of humorous. He says his contemporaries at the time referred to him as Antiochus Epimemes, Epimemes instead of Epiphanes, because Epimemes means madman, and Epiphanes means manifest. So not God manifest, but a madman. Uh, he really was uh, not just laughable, but, but terrifying. Um, what happened in 175 to 164 B.C. to command such attention from the biblical author? Such a small sliver of time, relative. Well, let's consider that for a few moments. Antiochus IV Epiphanes was not the rightful heir to the throne. He had paid off powerful people, thus flatteries. He had paid off powerful people, while the rightful heir Demetrius was in prison back in Rome, and he obtained the kingdom, verse 21b, by flattery. The prince of the covenant is Ptolemy VI of the south. He defeated Ptolemy VI, and Ptolemy VI accepted an alliance with the northern king, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And so Antiochus Epiphanes IV aggresses down to Alexandria, not all the way to Alexandria, but as far as Memphis, Egypt. And he is, seems to be winning in the south. And he gets an alliance made with Ptolemy VI to get the throne back from Ptolemy VII, who had taken over after Ptolemy VI had been put in prison up north. 
So he makes an alliance with his counterpart that's up here. But when Ptolemy VI got back home, he partnered with Ptolemy VII, and they co-ruled. They double-crossed Antiochus IV, which made him furious. Verses 25 to 27 doubles back to retell how Ptolemy VI was defeated by Antiochus IV. And then in verse 28, another telling of Antiochus IV and his winnings thus far. In verse 29, it describes the downfall of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, what happened at Hittim with the ships, the naval ships, or Cyprus, where Rome joined in with the Ptolemies in the south and delivered a crushing blow to Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the northern ruler. And verse 30 makes that clear. So the covenant between them was forsaken, and God's people were again caught in the crosshairs like they had been for hundreds of years within this, this Greek, Persian, and Greek saga. And history tells that the Roman commander made a mockery of Antiochus IV Epiphanes at the defeat. He took a, a vine and drew a line in the sand around, encircling Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and said, you're going to decide right now whether you're going to not fight against Rome or fight against Rome, basically at the expense of his life. And he wisely decided to go back to Antioch, Syria, and not to fight anymore. But the reality was that as any tyrannical ruler, he was going to take his wrath out on somebody, and he took it out on God's people and their worship. He decided to thoroughly Hellenize or Greekify Jerusalem. And it was a recipe by which tens of thousands of people were murdered. Uh, men, women, and children were murdered because of their attempt to be faithful to the covenant. So much so was the persecution that some of the people bought into the flatteries of Antiochus IV Epiphanes and they defected. And so that's some of the language you're reading in there that seems like some of God's people didn't stay with fidelity to the truth. And I have to say that it's somewhat understandable. Within this time, just prior and then in the middle of it, this is where the Maccabean, Maccabeans or the Hasmoneans lead a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. And in fact, they eventually succeed and expand land somewhat similar to the time of Joshua's conquest over a hundred-year time in which they have relative control, although the Maccabees do get into relations with Rome. And from that, what we find is eventually a claim by a man that claims connection with the Hasmoneans or the Maccabees later in the first century B.C. Perhaps you've heard of him, King Herod. You might remember King Herod, who was trying to kill off all the babies around the time that Christ was born in Bethlehem. So there is a real connection here, a gospel connection, a lineage connection. I think we need to drill down here within this part this religious oppression where Antiochus IV is, is taking out his wrath on God's people. Listen to how Don Carson describes it. I think it's very succinct and helpful. He said, The oppression the Jews had suffered up to this point in history was diverse, but not exactly like this. The ancient Egyptians had enslaved them, but did not try to impose their own religion on them. During the period of the judges, the Israelites were constantly running after pagan deities. When the pagans prevailed, they imposed taxes and cruel subjugation, but not necessarily ideology. When the exception of, with the exception of one brief experiment by Nebuchadnezzar, Assyria nor Babylon forcibly imposed polytheism or worship of many gods. But here is Antiochus IV Epiphanes, angry and humiliated, outlawing the Israelite faith, killing those found to have any part of Torah or biblical worship, biblical worship or Torah even in their possession. So to have the Torah in their possession was a death sentence. Militarily, he imposed and coerced a pagan worldview, thinking the only way he could reconstitute the land in which he ruled was to thoroughly Greekify. So he's doubling down on his failed policies. And the people suffered, and God eventually saved them. And canonically, this brutal period of history becomes a model or a type of ideological expression for suffering and martyrdom against the church. And you might think to yourself, well, how do you get there? Well, Jesus gets us there because he describes this in Matthew 24, 15, when he references Daniel 11 and other chapters in Daniel with regard to the abomination that causes desolation. 
So this third point, there's the second point. We're going to go on to our third point. But the second section here, the subset of Scripture, is verses 21 to 35, and it's almost certainly describing the rule and reign of the Seleucid northern king Antiochus IV Epiphanes and his wicked acts against God's people in Jerusalem. Now we come to our third point, and it comprises Daniel 11, verses 36 to 45. And it takes Antiochus IV Epiphanes as a sort of type of Antichrist, Antichrist that we'll face in the future. And so we pivot from not just disagreements, should we side with this or that, not just the, the, the real ramifications, but yet the, the, to an extent, lesser meaning of, of ebb and flow of politics into actual outright religious oppression. You cannot practice your faith. You cannot have a Bible. You cannot offer. You cannot make offerings. You cannot practice. This is, this is what happens. And now that is used as a type for the type of, to describe the type of persecution that we might face in the future and that we fear and that really uh, drives us to have worries about the future. How's it going to go? And so these last verses will create a sort of segue between this sermon and the next sermon because Daniel 12, 1-4 is interacting very much with the end of Daniel 11. It's not chapter divided that way, but we, we have to divide it somewhere. So we're going to take a, a quick look at these verses as our third and final point today and then try to draw in some preaching applications at the end because I know this has been a lot of history. But again, God gave you Daniel. So you need to know Daniel and you need to figure out what to do with Daniel. So that's why we're doing it. We're not, we're not going to just gloss over the hard parts of text, that's not how we go about things. We walk right through it. So that's what we're trying to do today. It's the glory of God. We're convictional about that. So our third point is God is with us through the toughest possible future struggles. Corey Ten Boom said this famously, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. That's really helpful for this, this section here. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Let's look at, at these verses together now. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the god of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these." A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships." And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main parts of the, Anamite, the, main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train." But news from the east and north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury and destroy and devote many to destruction, and he shall pitch his palace or palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, that's Temple Mount in Jerusalem, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. It seems as if uh, we need to remember to pray for persecuted Christians in our land today as a natural application of reading a text like this. I think of Nigerian Christians. Uh, many of them are just simply near our prayers today. We'll pray for them, Lord willing, in the prayer of supplication at the end of the service today. Um, the voice of the martyr sometimes helps me keep up with global persecution. I have a few pieces of news I received from a Christian perspective that help me. I would urge you to find something that helps you keep up with how to pray on the global scene for our brothers and sisters that are suffering to the point of the shedding of blood. It'll offer you a lot of perspective, and it'll also prepare you to meet the Lord, because the Lord wants us to consider all of His people and not just ourselves. Um, pray for missionaries, support a missionary. I think that's, a, that's a, an honestly a really good application to the church and its struggles and looking out into future struggles. It, it, it seems as if this text is, is kind of talking about the witness of Antiochus Epiphanes, the fourth Epiphanes, 
and kind of talking about Antichrist or an Antichrist in the future. And as I've said, more on that next week, but it kind of seems as if we're toggling a little bit here uh, when we look at the last part of Daniel chapter 11. Remember uh, Don Carson, I quoted him earlier. I want to I re-quote him one more time as is relevant here. He was explaining the time of, of this, this Greek Syrian Seleucid ruler, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, from 175 to 164 B.C. And he said, canonically in the Bible, this brutal period of history becomes a model, a type, an ideological expression, logical expression of suffering and martyrdom against the church. This is what the New Testament passages reflect. Like when Jesus teaches prophetically in Matthew 24, 15, referencing Daniel's abomination that causes desolation. He's referencing this Antiochus and his evil actions as a type of what Roman ruler Titus would do to the Jewish people in 70 AD. But the New Testament goes further. It leverages these events transtemporally to describe the Antichrist in 1 John, like 1 John 2.18, of which there's plural, more than one, and also some final Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. And we must let our minds think of, of the beast in Revelation 13 and the beasts that come against the people of God and persecute them, even beyond the ten waves of persecution in the Roman Empire. He, what is the descriptions of people like this, of powerful people that use their power to religiously oppress God's people. Uh, well, for one, this text tells us that they magnify themselves above all. So there should be a pretty natural application for us here as Christians. Let's be very careful that our lives are not described as magnifying ourselves above everything else. Let's not be described as that. Let's together worship the one that is to be magnified above every else, right? the ultimate man, Christ. And let's make sure that we don't hitch our saddles to or entrust our fortunes and futures to anyone that is so self-deifying or at least self-exalting. And this happens from time to time throughout history. And we must be wise enough, as this text says in an earlier portion, to act spiritually in times like that. We need to be made wise through the clear teaching of God's Word. You know, it's not, it's not always fanfare and fun to sit and study an over 1,000-page book and try to put it in its context and apply it. But you know what is really, 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 really sweet? Is to begin to ingest this thing and have more and more confidence that he's making you wise. He's making you wise. That's important. You need to wrestle with texts in the Bible that are hard texts and sometimes give yourself space and time to think about them and even be corrected by those that have more insight and wisdom into the text than you do, or into a particular text than you do. This is a community of students. It's a community of students of the text of Scripture. At its best, Christianity has been responsible not only for hospitals, but also for schools, for learning, for consideration of truth. And God has a book of truth. And I was thinking about that this week and pondering that book of truth. Daniel 10, 21 talks about it, and then it's picked up at the top of chapter 11. And I was just thinking to myself, like, imagine, if you, if you will, being in heaven one day. What if there's like a, a heavenly library, like in the new heavens and the new earth? And if you, if you like this sort of thing, like heavenly archives. And can you imagine like sitting around with some Christian friends and, and, and reading some archives and be like, oh, well, that's in the book of truth. You know, I don't know if we'll have access or not, but just lift your imagination a little bit and consider what we, we might have access to in the new heavens and the new earth. It could be that there's some really interesting things that we're sort of dipping our toes into the deep end of the pool with now. The, the end of this text is frightening, though. It's, it's, it's not to make us laugh happy. I mean, the Antichrist, the, the people in the world, and, and as we approach the end, whomever it is that comes against God's people more and more forcefully, whether that's strictly speaking spiritually, or physically, it is, it is frightening. And so I think we probably need some, some kind of fortifying that comes right out of this text to conclude this sermon. So look at, at verse 31 previously again. And so it's really quite instructive for application. Just verses 31 to, to uh, 40, 40, 34, 31 to 44. 31 to 34, if I can spit it out. It talks about... Um, in. Chapter 11, verse 31, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery. So we, we cannot 
continually give in to the temptations of seduction. And when we do, we have to be kept and get back up and not be seduced with flattery. And it says that we shall stand firm and take action. Well, I don't know what kind of Maccabean action is and is not sanctioned by God, but I'll say this as Christians, we have a call to action and to stand firm in the faith. That's for sure. In verse 33, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. We always have a teaching ministry. Ian Duguid does such a good job in his redemptive historical approach to this text, and he lays out a massive teaching about teaching. And he basically says is, we are the instructors. We are looking to take a, make a great many people understand these things from Scripture and help them understand what's happened so they have a better understanding of what's going to happen and make them wise. And so this is a, a passion that we develop and that, that I want to have by reading texts like this is to make us wise through more learning, not learning about everything else under the sun necessarily, but learning about Scripture and then how it frames everything else under the sun. And it says here, bless you, verse 35, that some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Fascinating verse, really. Kind of reminds me of the purification of God's people be made white and the end of time, and Revelation rings and zings in my mind whenever I'm thinking about or I'm reading this and my mind kind of think about it, and it might in yours as well. But we do stumble from time to time, don't we? I mean, sometimes we do, sometimes we do just the pressures of, uh, if not disagreements, religious oppression, it pushes us into a place to where we, we're cloudy and we, we, we have a, a dim view of God's work in our world. And, and we do need to be refocused. We do need to be kept. The end of Jude talks about snatching us away from the fires. And we, this is kind of, it is, it's not kind of, it is what the church is about. So if you, if you haven't joined with us yet, you've been on the fence about it, I hope one of the natural applications from this text is to join in church membership and to be a part of what we're trying to do to keep each other focused all the way home. Because we're, we're heading headlong into eternity. It's appointed for a man once to die and then to face the judgment. And the reality is we're being grown not in spite of, but through enduring through the persecutions that we have in this life. The text of Scripture really, there are texts of Scripture that really help us understand that truth. Um, one of them that comes to mind is Romans 3, Romans 5, 3 to 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Just listen to it. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice in our sufferings. But knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It reframes suffering a bit, doesn't it? Post-exile Jews needed to know God was with them in the toughest times, and we do too, don't we? God stands with us through struggles. We need to know that Christ grows us in His church by walking with us through the most difficult times of our lives. Consider finally 1 Peter 1, 6-12 for a gospel connection today. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Who hasn't been grieved by various trials? 1 Peter 1, 6 says, and then 1, 7 says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, listen to Peter talk as if to us. You love him, though you've not seen him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that, that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy unspeakable and filled with glory. Any of you remember that old song? Can you say with the gospel writer, can you say with Peter, though you haven't seen him, you already love him? Can you say it? Can you say that? Can you say that your faith is more precious than money, than gold? Can you say that? You believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter ended his writing there with concerning the salvation of the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Let that sink in. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you. I, I hope you understand that you're to serve the next generations. I hope you understand that. And you serve Christ 
We don't serve for ourselves. Serving is antithetical to being strictly about ourselves. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel, the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look into. And angels are on the scene in Daniel 12 too. And this is amazing and it's for us as Christians. If you're a non-Christian in my hearing today, I want to tell you, you have no claim to these wonderful truths. You're outside of Christ and you will spend eternity outside of Christ because that's what you're choosing. And you'll never see heaven and you won't be a part of the new earth. You will face God's right wrath against you for eternity because of your smugness toward his promises for you in this life. And what I'm offering to you today is not a whooping, but a free gift. The free gift for you is receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, you don't bring anything to get it. You don't make it happen. You don't rewrite it. You're not smart enough for it. You're not informed enough for it. If this message of the gospel resonates with you today, just receive it. Receive it with tears if need be. Give your life to Christ today. Let this be the first day of the rest of eternal life for you. Let's pray. God, we take a few moments today just to consider your scripture and these exhortations that you might drill deep into us the things that you have for us. God, we can't even agree over north or south without your help. Help us. People defect and come back, and some defect not to come back. We don't know. Heads or tails, we wish you'd bring them all back. And Lord, people that we think are destined to be Antiochuses, we wish you'd convert them. This gospel is available to them, and we pray you, you would convert hard cases right here in our midst, so we just give all the glory to you for answering our prayer that we pray today together. I pray for your gospel to be freely received as it's been freely given and that you would shape everybody in my hearing by it, myself included. Free our minds, Lord, from bitterness. Free our hearts from the scars of betrayal. And our lands from religious oppression. Help us to stand under the weight of these struggles and overcome future worries. Help us to live faithful in the present. And I pray for our present work now, like VBS, for fruit. Reconnect our members that need to be reconnected. Help us to proclaim the gospel and outreach to the community with a message of hope. Lord, would you bring relief to Christians in the world that are in the middle of this oppression, that know about Antichrist all too well? Would you bring relief? Make us mindful of how to pray and help us as we pray. Help them, please, Lord. Lord, there are some here today that are struggling with assurance of salvation because of how far they've stumbled. How could they ever stand again? Oh Lord, the accusation of the devil is real. But your security is realer. I ask today that despite all the wickedness and the lies, that your people would know that they are so if they've face-planted, denied, if they've become altogether too preoccupied with their own self-interests, their own pursuits of pleasure, I pray you draw them back to your throne that is best described by grace. Help them to live their faith. Would you heal the physically sick and fix the lame that we care for and pray for on our prayer list each week? you give the doctors of these people wisdom for their health? Help those that are grieving, recent loss, those that are facing end-of-life issues. Heal our land from the shootings, 
help the families of those left behind. May the gospel come to bear in their lives. Thank you, Lord, for our safety team. Would you help them? We pray for our law enforcement officers in our town, in our county. Help folks like Skyler and all the rest. Would you help Keck Avenue in Evansville find a pastor? Would you help our expectant moms and their unborn children? Would you end the scourge of abortion? Help our brothers and sisters speak clearly about that need on June 25th in Indianapolis. Would you stop the bleeding? Give us a heart for life. Would you give us an installment of that through our VBS work this week? Would you steer our land toward love and not military might alone toward the gospel that we might know how to act wisely? Lord, there are unspoken needs today because privacy, but you know squarely who they are and what they're dealing with, and we pray for them. Ask for your help, because all of our help comes from you, our loving and just God, in whom we entrust ourselves now, in whose name we pray. All of God's people can say together, amen. Stand for our benediction.